Welcome back to Emory's Creativity Conversations podcast. This podcast takes excerpts from the live endowed speaker series, Rosemary McGee Creativity Conversations, and turns them into podcasts. I'm Maggie Becker, the host and producer of this podcast. I work for Arts at Emory, and I'm an Emory alum of theater studies and creative writing. I'm joined long distance over Skype due to coronavirus mandates by Stipe scholar and Emory student artist Blair Ripley to introduce the Creativity Conversation with Kevin Young and faculty moderator Heather Crystal. The point of these introductions are to provide an exciting way to continue the conversation on creativity. Blair and I will chat about Young's thoughts, Blair's work, and creating in general. Blair, why don't you introduce yourself? My name is Blair. Environmental science is my primary major, and then I'm in the IVAC program at Emory as my double major, so I do visual art within the program. I'm a junior this year. Very excited to hopefully come back in the fall. I also play basketball at Emory. Well, you are the well-rounded student Emory always brags about. You've got the athletics, the arts, the integrated visual arts co-major, as well as environmental science. Why did you pick this Kevin Young conversation? I picked Kevin, this Kevin Young conversation partly because the moderator, she seemed so enthusiastic about the conversation from the start and I was not previously familiar with Kevin's work. I was just intrigued by the first couple minutes of their conversation and while I'm not doing poetry at Emory per se, I did a lot of poetry in high school. We had a spoken word club in high school run by this amazing man, his name is Peter Kahn and he has like his fingers kind of pretty deep into the poetry scene in Chicago. I'm from Oak Park, which is a suburb right outside. So I was very fortunate to be involved in that kind of program in high school. So I have a lot of like love and respect for poets and poetry. That's great. I find that a lot of times our students will pick people that they directly are inspired by. What are some things that Kevin Young said or Heather Crystal that stuck out to you, whether just about creativity or their particular methodology, anything like that? So something that I found that was interesting about this conversation was two big things, I think, for me that related directly back to like my art practice, I would say, was the element of music. Kevin reads a poem in the Creativity Conversation about James Brown. I just definitely know that music over time, my like tastes and how they've changed, has had like a huge influence on my visual art. Music definitely plays a big role, I would say, in my artistic evolution, which is ongoing. But um, <laughs> And then I guess the second piece was kind of the fact that his experience with archives and with the Rose Library and everything. I had my first more serious experience researching in the Rose Library this year, and I thought that was just an incredible resource that's very underutilized by students in a casual way. And this is kind of something that they talk about in the conversation. So the Rose Library is on Emory's campus. It's the Stuart A. Rose Manuscript Archives and Rare Book Library. What did you use the Rose Library for? One of my continued writing credits, but it was a class about the Me Too movement. And we got into a lot of contemporary artists, visual artists, and poets and writers. We have a copy of Chankani Kipu, which is a work by Cecilia Vicuña, and she is a poet and performance artist. There's not many of these that exist. I can't remember the exact number, but I think it's around 30 that are published. But a, a kipu, they were formerly these tools for writing that were used by ancient indigenous communities. 
communities. She doesn't necessarily recreate because she knows that this practice is not her intellectual or cultural property, but she kind of makes her own kipu and like poem that goes along with it. And so it's this huge, maybe like five or six feet long with strands of wool. So it's like a physical piece. That for me was really interesting because it, it's a fascinating cross-section between tactile visual art and writing. Do you find yourself combining your visual work, that kind of tactile work, with either the poetry you might revisit on your own personal time or with your environmental science major? Yeah, so that's something that I've also been like consciously working on kind of the older I've gotten. For me personally, over the years, it always seems like art and basketball and school were like always kind of at odds because they're competing for my time in a very literal sense. However, the fact that I am this one person with all these interests, that's something that I've been trying to work on as I've come to college. I've had a lot of personal conversations with Dana Haugard, who's a professor here, and he's been fantastic in trying to... Gives me a lot of like practical examples of artists that are out there who do these kinds of things, mixing not necessarily sports specifically, but these different pieces of their identity. And so that's something that I've been trying to work on. Can you talk about a particular project that you've done combining your environmental science and your sports and your art together this is a piece that I was like very proud of at the time it's funny because in the creativity conversation there's a question about editing and I was thinking about editing and how I edit my physical art because it's not like if I make a sculpture and it's a completed thing it's very hard or impossible to go back and like change something internal about it the way that you can when you're writing. But Kevin just talks about how he'll set a piece aside and let time change. So at the time I made this piece, I was like really happy with it. And kind of afterwards I realized some ways I could have adjusted it. So I might revisit it in like a new way, but I made this sculpture out of plaster, chicken wire, burlap, tempered glass, and these shells that I got on a trip to Charleston. This actually ties into that. So um, I was there for a National Geological Society conference, and I went with a Emory environmental science professor. One of the field trips for the conference was like going out to a beach. I got all these kind of gnarly looking oyster shells that were like not ones that people were picking up because they looked good, but they have this sound when you dangle them together. I made like this, this big ball that was like a wire cage and strung the shells across on the inside of the cage and then covered it in plaster. And there are these little windows made out of broken and tempered glass bottles and stuff. You can't actually see inside of it and if you could it would just be dark but it was this kind it's very it's this very like amorphous and it's like rough it looks very organic kind of piece that just sounds like not necessarily the sea exactly obviously but like these kind of nature sounds I like that piece a lot because you have to physically engage with it to access the whole experience which is something that I kind of started experimenting more with in college because before you think about the possibilities you never really know what they are until you approach it from all angles exactly yeah (laughs) well Blair thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and share your craft to our listeners please enjoy this edited down conversation between Kevin Young and faculty moderator Heather Crystal I'm so glad that you're all here. I'm delighted that Kevin Young is back. I'm going to tell you a bit about the many things that he does and then we'll talk about 
the many things that he does. So he is the director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in New York. He's the poetry editor of The New Yorker. He's written 13 books of poetry and prose. He's the editor of nine others. Brown, which is the most recent book of poems, and his nonfiction book, Bunk, which is such a good title. It's all about hoaxes and, well, the subtitle. The Rise of Hoaxes, Humbug, Plagiarist, Phonies, Postfacts, and Fake News. Both that and Brown were New York Times notable books, long listed for the National Book Award. He is the university visiting professor at Emory and Bain Swigget, professor at Princeton for fall 2019. He's a busy person. So we're, we're delighted to have him here with us. How are you? I'm good. Good to see you. Yeah, it's nice to see you too. Yeah. yeah. Congrats on your book review. Oh, thank you. I had a review in the New York Times today. Which yeah, it's very nice. For the crying book, yeah. it was very good. God, my heart was beating so fast reading that. See, I don't read them. Oh, that's so smart. I learned, yeah. I'm going to learn from that eventually. I'm <laughs> nah, going to learn from that. It's fine. We're, we're talking about creativity and sort yeah. of how we make things. And one of the things that I found myself thinking about as I was reading through some of your recent work is actually from your very recent work. You just wrote an essay about Ralph Ellison's Selected Letters. Yeah. That was in The New Yorker. The thing that I loved about it was the opening, where you have this beautiful construction of all of these books that relate to fire in some way, have been destroyed by fire, made right. valuable by fire. And of course, thinking about Ellison's lost work to fire. Yeah. And I found myself wondering, oh, this is gorgeous. This is like, this could be its own crown of sonnets, <laughs> you know? And I wondered, do you have in your brain little nodes of connections like that that you sort of store away? Or did you find that writing this essay about Ellison's work called them all forward and connected them in this way that felt like this beautiful, necessary, vibrant beginning to the work? Oh, big question right off the bat. I like it. I think it was a little of both, to be honest. I've been thinking about that, and truth be told, like some of those thoughts about fire have been coursing through nonfiction thing that I'm thinking about working on, or I am working on, I'll be honest. Um, so I also, I literally was like, I think about to go to bed and woke up, and I was like, that seems to me a way to get a handle on what's really a gigantic book, and also obviously a huge figure in Ralph Ellison. And Ellison's fire is so strange because he barely mentions it. He doesn't go back to the space for eight months. He just kind of offhandedly to almost a stranger says, oh, I had a fire. And then again, he says eight months later to uh, his tailor at the Andover shop in Harvard, which seems so strange, that, oh, I had this fire. And I went back and saw it. But he doesn't really say, like, I lost a lot of pages. But in his mind, or at least and in the correspondence, fire kind of gets larger and larger. One of the aspects of that catalog that I mentioned that had issued a list of all these books destroyed by fire is a lot of them probably weren't. So there was a kind of quality of that that I wanted to, to capture that, sure, the ones that I mentioned are f burned books, but there is a kind of quality of, it's sexier than saying, like, we lost it, or I just couldn't find this book, or it just never sold and we don't know what happened to it. Obviously, Ellison's book is the most eagerly awaited second book, but it has the same kind of history of wasn't as done as he wanted it to be, or we even had hoped it would be, and he was also sort of spinning his wheels in a way. And so it was a way to kind of get at 
that, his own creativity, but also his own stifled creativity. Right, which is part of the process. Yeah, and you know, I had written about him before in terms of the shadow book, this idea I talk about in the Grey Album book of mine about lost books, but I really wanted to visit it again and see what these letters told us about that. Yes, and I love the moment where you talk about the tailor. It's so surprising, and it feels like a, a really wonderful sort of illustrative moment of what it's like to engage with somebody's papers in depth and you see something that seems so significant and yet shows up in this unexpectedly small right. way. I read the letters sort of over a few months uh, and I realize now how sort of rare they are, you know, because they're all in this giant book, you think. Being in archives, I would know how rare these things are, but you know, most of them aren't published. I've read a ton of Ellison and a ton about him, so to kind of see his own point of view over a thousand pages is pretty wild. And he starts off really complaining to his mom a lot uh, <laughs> from college and ends up sort of writing these big long essays that he could never really write as, as fictions or even as essays sometimes. I was thinking too about clusters of meaning associations that build up. So fire was the first one that I noticed in, in thinking about what you've been writing lately and then I was looking at brown and I was thinking about that word brown mm. and the poem brown and I wondered how early on in writing that book that word and name came forward as a sort of nexus of constellation for you. Brown had a slightly different history than some of the books I've written. It didn't come all at once. It really was poem by poem. I didn't know what it would be. I always wanted to write a poem about the fact that my church in Topeka, Kansas, where I lived for middle school and high school, was the same church that Linda Brown, the little girl in Brown v. Board was. And so she played piano in that church. And so to have her there really was meaningful to me growing up, getting a sense of history in the sense of the Topeka School District's place in infamy, but also in the change that the Brown family and many other plaintiffs who sued helped integrate this land. So there was that always lurking for me but it's hard to do it's hard to write a poem about history especially the way that history is always personal but also the way that for me it was deeply personal and I, I want to get it right and not get it wrong and luckily I've read it a few times in Topeka and people from that church have said that's what it was like you know really the first kind of Brown who came to me was James Brown he had died between Christmas and New Year's and I saw a listing for him still about to play at BB King's like on New Year's Eve and I thought like what if he showed up and so I up writing this poem about that. And so it seemed like all these other kinds of brownness, including John Brown, the, what would you call him, the, the rabble-rousing anti-slavery, you know, rebel. He was this figure that was kind of lurking over my childhood too in Kansas, he having gone there. So there was this, all these things that came up. And then, of course, I was interested in the idea of brownness uh, writ large and having a son who's now 13, but at the time he was like 10 or something. And I was writing these poems about my childhood and I was thinking a lot about his childhood. And I was also thinking about the ways that boys his age were getting shot in the street. It was really hard to kind of not write about that, even though I had told myself I would stop writing about him when he could talk. But he's forgiven me, I guess. So. <laughs> This is also advice that I need to store away for writing yeah. about one's child. Would you read that poem for us? Because yeah, I'd love to talk about music with you, too. Yeah. It's called James Brown at B.B. King's on New Year's Eve. And the first line is a quote from James Brown. James Brown at B.B. King's on New Year's Eve. The one thing that can solve most our problems is dancing. And sweat, cold or not, and burnt ends of ribs, or reason of hair singed and singing, the hot combs caress. Days after he dies, I see James Brown still scheduled to play B.B. King's come New Year's Eve.
ringing it in us, falling to the floor like the famous glittering midnight ball drop, countdown, forehead full of sweat, please, 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 begging on his knees. The night King was killed, shot by the Memphis Moan in a town where B.B. King sang, St. James in Boston tells the crowd, cool it. A riot on stage, heartache rehearsed, practice, don't dare be late or miss a note or you'll find yourself fined 50 bucks, a fortune. Even the walls sweat. A godfather's confirmation suit, his holler, wide-collared grits and greens. Encore, exhausted after, collapsed, carried out, away, off. Not on a gurney, no bedsheet over his bouffant, conch shining, but boots on and a cape glittering bright as midnight or its train. Thank you. There's this thing that happens in your poems where you imagine the dead going on in the world in some way. This happens a lot. Well, I, I'm thinking about scary. It. No, not a lot. But I'm just I'm thinking about there's and this is this is at a, on a more personal level. But there's a moment where you get a phone call from a, a robotic voice <laughs> pretending that they've just heard from your father yeah. who's passed. It's worse. It was a person. Yes. Yeah. Saying, oh, I, Paul, can you call me back about the cruise? I mean, that's what the person said. I can only laugh about it, but it was distressing. I can imagine. But I got my revenge because I'm a poet, so we <laughs> take our time and then write a poem, you know. Yes. Sometimes I feel like we should issue warnings to people when we speak to them. You know, like, just so you know, if you no. start doing something, I'm a poet. No. <laughs> They have fair warning. See, you have this beautiful relationship with music that shows up in a lot of your poems. I was actually, I was thinking about it in, um, with Fishbone. I love it, the way that you connect with Fishbone through shoes. Yeah. You know, and, and the sort of like subcultural style of shoes. Sure. I was thinking about this because all the sections are named after different kinds of shoes. There's Doc Martens, there's Fluvogs. That's yeah. when things get like a little too fancy, it seems like. <laughs> no, not, not then. Fluvogs in like 92, you'd save up, but they cost what Doc Martens cost. Oh, okay, okay. Then you also have Creepers. Yes, Creepers. Yeah. Would you explain? Which are those pointy shoes with the big fat sole? I think I'm, this is just me asking you to do a service because I keep trying to explain <laughs> Creepers to people um, because I've been thinking about them lately. Anyway. Like um, <laughs> new waivers, wore them. Yeah. They come back like every 15 years. Like yeah, that. I think it was originally Teddy Boys. Yeah, they were yeah. originally, they're kind of a version of those pointy like monk strap shoes that mods wore. Yes. So what kind of shoes did you wear? I did not wear creepers, sadly, but I wore all those other shoes, I think. I still probably have them. Being an archivist of shoes is really tough, but my shoe archive is robust. <laughs> that poem, it's funny because I literally talk about it in the poem, finding their first record, which was so important to me. And it was my copy of it. It was just floating around somewhere. And you know, from there, I just started connecting all these times I connected to this band, who are more obscure probably than ever now, sadly, but were really important sort of black punk, post-punk, musicians and they were terrific musicians and then one time as I explain in the poem and now I don't really tell it as a story because it's a poem I saved one of them from getting totally beat up I mean he got beat up a little but me and my friend saved him in London but it's also about I think nostalgia and a lot of the poems in that section especially this poem which I'll read from tomorrow called De La Soul is Dead are about like the past and that time and what it meant and it was kind of strange for me to be writing about it like it was the past because it feels so present but it was important 
too, to kind of realize the distance that people, you know, it has a formal quality to it that though people dress sometimes like the 80s, they don't think about like these other cultural things that changed me at least. So this is also a, a moment of sort of being a poet who is moving through time, a poet who has a relationship to archives and history in the past, and then thinking about one's own life entering into that kind sure. of space of being recalled from a greater distance. I'm also, I'm wondering about this relationship between creativity and the archives, how archival research can feel like a poem mm. of, of its own, that, that sort of moving along hoping to be surprised, not knowing what it is that is mm -hmm. going to come up, but knowing that there will be mm -hmm. something. I was wondering if there are any archival experiences that you've had that have been especially generative, that have felt especially like that moment of discovery in a poem. I think discovery is so important for all these things. I've been thinking about it a lot as the Bain Swigert professor at Princeton. I'm teaching a class that's half at Princeton and half at the Schomburg Center, which I run. And being at Schomburg, it's fascinating to see, and I experienced this at Rose Library too, to see things through students' eyes. Sometimes they play it a little cool, but often they don't, which is great, you know, because you're staring here at the Rose Library at the first edition of Leaves of Grass, which Whitman pulled off the printer, we know. It's just incredible. You know, you're touching through time this artifact. But even more recent things, like at Schomburg, we have James Baldwin's papers and his personal archive. In it is a great like set of notes for a novel, but it's on the back of like a, he would go to a bar, I guess, and write as one might. And he's written on the back of one that it says, two drink minimum on the other side. <laughs> and he has this great penmanship and he's drafting this late novel on it. I think for people visiting, it means it's so different and so powerful and immediate. We also have draft after draft of his first novel with many different names, many different kind of places it's going to go that it doesn't ultimately go, different titles. And that's, I think, really important, too, to see the process. So it's both discovery, I think, but also, to me, seeing that process of how a book or a poem or, or anything creative is made it's really helpful because especially as you're starting out as a writer, it can feel like you're the first person. I didn't know any writers when I was younger, certainly not any poets, and certainly not poets who were trying to write from a place that I felt like I was trying to write from, which was having parents who had come from the South and from Louisiana and, and seen my grandmother in a poem. And so my goal, which I don't think I knew it then, and I probably articulate to myself more now, is that I want to write a book that had her in it, that she was in. Sometimes people say, I want to write a book they can read. It wasn't so much that. I want to honor her in the way I knew how, which was to write poems about Louisiana and the way people talked and ate. And now I think the archive is very much like that. I think when I started in archives here at Emory in 2005, there was a sense that archives were these things that you would make sure no one saw. Really now, I think this is true across the board, but I think a lot of people in this room helped make that possible here at Emory that it was so important that everyone experienced them. I think that was really a sea change in archives. I like to think that Emory was at the foreground of that. Certainly Schomburg has been for a long time thinking about that, but it's also a kind of change in libraries more largely because as you can imagine a library and an archive especially is a place of not big change it's not supposed to be we don't even like the temperature or the humidity to change a lot <laughs> and so then to come in and say hey let's open this all up and access is really important discovery if you will made kind of formal I think is really important and that's where I think the field is and 
To me, it's not unlike poetry when there was a kind of snobbishness about poetry. I don't think there was a particular time when there wasn't, but you know, there had become a kind of like, this is good poetry, then the rest of it is bad, and the good poetry all felt kind of the same. For me, the democratization of poetry from Whitman onward through Langston Hughes and Gwendolyn Brooks and all these great figures is so important, and I see that too in, in archives. I'm so glad that you all are thinking about that. I, I've only just recently sort of entered into archival research sure. myself, and one can feel such a sense of it being at this sacred, forbidden space yeah. um, that you have to enter ritually and disrobe. And, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, I think it's sacred, but it's sacred in the way that like dancing is sacred. It's really important, you know, because to me, it's like however you get people in that space is important, and if they see a piece of Baldwin along the way, they see Audre Lorde's this or that, you know, it's really part of the experience of the archives. Because archives aren't only in research, they're also an experience, I think. The next thing that I wanted to ask you about, which sure. is the creative relationship between editing and, and your own creative practice. And I was thinking about it in particular with your editing of a book of poems of grief and healing, um, of elegy, and then the book of hours in which you're grieving your father. And I was wondering, how those processes intersected for you, what you learned from one that carried over to the other. Sure. Well, I did the anthology after I had written, I probably had published the poems after, but I'd written a lot of them. And I had written about him in a book called Dear Darkness. Mm -hmm. And those were more immediate poems. A lot of them were odes to food and food we ate together. And so they had this purposely, I think I was looking for a form and the ode was a great form for me. And then I ended up editing the grief anthology, Art of Losing. I learned a lot because there were a lot of poems in there that I had turned to, but then I discovered more and then I sort of discovered how people write about grief now, which I think is different. You know, certainly I could have done a book that went back and thought about older elegies, but it seemed important to really not have anything too much older than Dickinson and really think about what's the modern relationship to grief. As I say in the introduction, I mean, I sort of wished after my father died that we still had that tradition of wearing like a black armband, you know, because you're in the airport, you're in a restaurant, and people are just rude to each other and not patient, you know, and people are going through their stuff. There's a way in which those markers, I would say, of mourning, not just grief, because grief can be more private, but let's say mourning is the more public thing. We don't have good, common, solid markers for that always. I was recently at Toni Morrison's memorial and gave a talk. I was really moved by all these writers writing about her. And what I realized is how individual they were, how we each had one, some relationship to Morrison. Some personal, some less so. But, you know, Edwige Danticat talking about taking her or being given her hairpins, you know what I mean? Like, just stands you on end. And I think those kind of rituals of keeping and keepsakes, we kind of miss sometimes. And some of them are in the archive. But at the same time, that's kind of the point of a poem is it can, even more sometimes than a physical thing, it can keep a memory alive. It can also talk about those difficult moments because grief, as you may know, is very complicated. And it's never done, but it's also changes. And so I think a poem does that better than many other things. So I really want to gather in one place these things that help me been pleased that people come up to me pretty regularly and tell me it helped them. And then I think I wanted, after that, I finished what became Book of Hours and those poems, I wanted to have a different feel than those odes and to be a bit more formal, though the form kind of fell away and they were just left with what you're left with after grief, which is this formal feeling. I mean, there's even within one of the poems, I think, a sort of critique of some of the mourning rituals that are 
cold and formulaic, like from a bereavement specialist. Oh, yeah. That's the same poem where I yeah. talk about the cruise. Yes. So it may be that the contemporary moment has some rituals of mourning, but they are unsuited. I mean, that's not a ritual to yeah. call up the insurance company and have them stonewall you, you know? Yes. I mean, it might be a common practice, but, but it, it doesn't ha it's not enriching. No. I think those are the weird, modern, frustrating. My family, my father's side, all my grandparents, my father, they're all buried in not only the same funeral home, which has been there serving this black community in Louisiana for eons, but also the same parlor, the same literal room. You're like, back in this room again. Wow, you know, like that connection I think is really powerful. It can be strange and, and haunting, but it's also, you know that the Williams Funeral Home is there. It's a fact. And it would be weird if it sort of changed. So, and I don't think we totally have that often as Americans, a resting place. So maybe that's one of the things I was trying to think about. And poems, I think, often provide some solace, some way of speaking back, but also reaching back. There are some poems that you wrote that you actually traveled to do research for, Money Road. So Money Road is a poem for John T. Edge, and it also touches on the murder of Emmett Till. And I was wondering how working on a poem like that feels different to you than recollecting from memory, but actually going to a place to make observations? It wasn't planned in the sense that I was actually going there for research into another poem, which was this oratorio that the Southern Foodways Alliance had commissioned to write about this waiter and a barkeep and also sort of activist in Greenwood, Mississippi, named Booker Wright. Booker has a, it was on the news a while ago, and, and you, know, you can see it on, uh, I think on YouTube, but on one of these streaming services, where he, as part of an NBC documentary, tells the menu at this place called Lusco's in Greenwood, and then they ask him, like, what's it like for you? And he describes, quite on purpose, what it's like in sort of the daily humiliations under Jim Crow that he experienced, and saying he just wants better for his kids. Pretty basic thing that got him pistol-whipped by cops, got him fired from Lusco's, though some people said, you know, Lusco's might not say it that way. But having eaten at Lusco's, which is still this old kind of steakhouse with prohibition curtains that you would pull, you feel this kind of history in it. And so I had gone there with John T to look at that and to look at Booker's physical space, the bar he owned around the corner from Lusco's, but a world away. We were there, and then I was like, let's, you know, go see Emmett Till. It's 10 miles, or not even Emmett Till, where he met his end. Somewhere after two minutes, it was like a pilgrimage. That poem is an account of that pilgrimage, but I think it would be really different if I had planned it. So you start to drive to Emmett Till's grave and it starts to snow in Mississippi, you're like, well, it's about something else, you know? Mm -hmm. And you just hope you can write something as good or as powerful as that experience. Um, and so for me, to be able to try to capture some of that feeling, and again, I was writing in the midst of all these other incidents more recently, it seems really important to me. It felt more like a pilgrimage than research. Yeah. It felt more like a journey than anything else. And you know, the poems for John T, for many reasons, but not least of which because we were there together. I'd love for all of you to get the chance to ask questions of Kevin while he is here. How much do you go, you write it and you write it? A lot. I rewrite a lot. Very occasionally a poem comes more formed, but it never comes fully formed. The more you write and the more you revise, the more chance you have of getting a freebie once in a while. But really, it's keeping at it. 
this is true of anything, I think. If you play music, you have to practice. Jazz especially, if you're playing, you know, I think of Sonny Rollins, the great jazz musician who would go on the Williamsburg Bridge. They said it was the Brooklyn Bridge, but that's not true. The writer changed it so to give him some cover. But he played on the Williamsburg Bridge. He had records already. He had albums. He was world acclaimed, but he decided he'd do what they call sabbaticals now. His, he had two sabbaticals where he stepped away from music and just practiced and practiced. And he came back and his music was different. I think about that one. I think, well, that line will be okay. And you're like, no, I got to keep at it. I try to help people understand that for me at least the first draft you have to be really kind to yourself and not be judging or just let it happen and then in subsequent drafts or edits you have to have that demon editor come in and, and be a little bit ruthless or a little bit at least gimlet-eyed uh, and honest about what you're trying to get at or what that really sounds like do you like to get a day in between or a week or how oh i mean like years you know <laughs> yeah in Book of Hours, that book we were talking about took 10 years to write. I probably had finished some of the poems, but I just didn't publish it for 10 years after my dad died, um, almost to the month. That was purposeful. I wanted to not rush it. There wasn't a rush. It wasn't like I was writing about something that was going to change exactly. And the book even didn't change, but what that time did is give me time to live with the poems, live with what were really powerful memories as poems, but also at times to find the right form. There were poems that I remember literally taking from quatrains, you know, four-line stanzas to tercets, three-line stanzas, and suddenly it was a poem. Like, it was like, something's off about this. And then just changing that, which, you know, on our computers seems really easy, but I think is almost harder than when we used to type things up. You could be like, yeah, oh, I'm going to play it. It's just a piece of paper. But there's something permanent feeling almost about screens, even though it's easy to make them not. I find if I'm trying to get something different, and this is true of prose and poetry, I'll like look at it even on a different screen. Like I'll look at it on my phone or I'll turn into a PDF and I'll look at it and it has a different feeling. I don't think this is accidental and I think that whatever you can do to kind of get back at that originalness and not just see it as a done thing is really important. How do you reconcile tension between being inspired to write about something but feeling as though perhaps you know, what does one do when you're confronted with something you want to write about but you're not sure? I mean, I think there's a many considerations and you're asking, I think, the right questions. I can speak mostly from me, which is that I think that you have to have that same question when you're writing about your grandparents, for instance. There's still an ethical question about, like, am I able to? Now, I should say this is the difference between writing about them, which you have to write about what you have to write about and publishing that thing or putting it out there. So sometimes I think there's things that we might be ready to say to ourselves but aren't really ready for the world. But I think you're also asking about sort of larger kind of cultural things. And to me, you have to be human and fearless, you know, a little bit and also open to the kind of questions and concerns that might come up from that. But I think those ethical concerns are there if you're writing about your grandparents or whatever. I knew, for instance, going back to college, that I was wanting to write about, and I had started writing about the Amistad Rebellion, the mutiny by enslaved people at sea in 1839, where they killed the captain and the cook, and they hijacked the ship to try to get back to Sierra Leone, where they were from. But they weren't seafaring folk. They were mostly inland peoples. And the, they saved their would-be slave owners, who then rerouted them by night. So they would go toward the rising sun in the day and then be rerouted by night. And this story just, I discovered from their letters from jail, because they were arrested when they were eventually caught.
caught and decided whether or not they should go back to their would-be slave owners or to the Navy who found them. The choice wasn't like, let's let these people who were stolen from their homes free. That really just captivated me. And I wrote a bunch of them. I wrote things using the letters. And then I realized there was this part I couldn't yet write. I didn't know what it was like to have a kid, much less to be ripped away from that person and never see them again. There were levels of grief or experience I just didn't have. And I didn't have a form to hold them. And I sort of looking for the form I think can really help because if you find the form, you probably found the emotion too. But I couldn't find the right thing. And so I waited. You know, I didn't throw those poems away. I put them in a drawer. And 20 years later, I ended up writing the rest of the story and, and published it. 20 years is a long time, but it passed pretty fast because I was working on other stuff. You know, it was just like something that was brewing back there. And then when I finally did start to write it, I was older and able to kind of write about it. So to me, there's the ethical question. There's the question of, do I have the skill and sympathies as a poet? The empathy question uh, to do it. And then I think that empathy question goes to kind of, am I able to write about this? Do I understand enough? Or am I slipping into cliches, which you should be worried about anyway? We're in a moment when there's much more awareness of these kinds of cliches that were predominant. How do you kind of write past that? It's something you should always be asking yourself, but I think is all the more important if you're writing about someone who isn't you. Well, thanks, everyone. Thank you so much. Thanks, thanks Thank you for listening to this Rosemary McGee Creativity Conversation. This podcast was brought to you by Emory University and Arts at Emory. It was produced by Emma Yarbrough and me, Maggie Becker. Be sure to check out our other podcast episodes and follow us on Facebook at Arts at Emory and Instagram at Emory Arts. <laughs>